0: Good morning and Merry Christmas. Yeah. Let, let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come not only to study, but also the world uh, pauses uh, to, to remember, even though we understand the history, this is, a, this is a time the world remembers that you came to this earth to be our Savior, and we're so thankful for that. We ask that you'll join us today and enlighten and our minds, help us draw closer to you, and help us to be effective witnesses for you at this time in, in human history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. All right, we're doing lesson number two uh, in the quarterly, uh, in the last days, the message of Hebrews, and the title of this lesson is The Message of Hebrews. And the last paragraph in Sabbath's lesson uh, reads, Thus Paul wrote Hebrews to strengthen the faith of the believers amid their trials. He reminds them and us that the promises of God will be fulfilled through Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father and who will soon take us home. In the meantime, Jesus mediates the Father's blessings to us. Did you hear that? That's well said. They have Jesus mediating from the Father to us instead of mediating to influence the Father. I think that's well said. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says the main point of Hebrews is that Jesus is the ruler who is seated at the right hand of the Father. As God, Jesus always has been the ruler of the universe. But when Adam and Eve sinned, Satan became the ruler of this world. Jesus, however, came, to, came and defeated Satan at, at the cross, recovering the right to rule those who accept him as their Savior. So, what do you think about that? The idea of rulership. Satan is referred to as, by Jesus as the prince of this world. The kingdoms of the world are referred to as Satan's. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. So there's some aspect where Jesus in the Bible clearly allows for the fact that Satan has some aspect of rulership here. But what about this idea that Jesus came and at the cross defeated Satan, recovering the right to rule those who accept him? Interesting, isn't it? The lesson further down correctly describes Satan as a usurper, Jesus as the legitimate ruler. If that's so think that through and the language they use legitimate doesn't legitimate mean rightful okay so if Jesus is legit and doesn't usurper mean unrightful so if Jesus is the rightful or legitimate ruler does he actually have to do anything to reclaim his right if he's already legitimate and rightful Did Jesus, another way to ask the question, did Jesus not have the right to rule before the cross? After Adam's sin, before the cross, they're suggesting he had to go through the cross to reclaim the right to rule. That's what they suggest. That's what they say. Yes?
1: Wasn't a creator and by creation had the right?
0: That's exactly correct. That's my view. Aren't rights given as a form of, aren't they part of an imposed law system anyway? This is the point. Thank you, Russell. That's exactly right. This is, this kind of thinking, this type of description, this type of logic of recovering the right is what you get when you try to understand scripture through the imposed law lens. The imposed law lens leads you to this language. The design law landscape is what you're suggesting, that Jesus has always been the legitimate ruler He's always had the right to rule. It's never been removed, never been surrendered, never been stolen from Jesus. In fact, if Satan actually had the right to rule, the actual right to rule, Jesus coming to earth to take it would make Jesus an invader. To take something that he has no right to, because it's Satan's right. It's completely corrupt. This is what you always get with imperial law thinking. Satan never had a right to rule here. Adam, understand, Adam was Jesus' subordinate and governed earth under the authority of Jesus. Satan did not take Jesus' position or authority, but Adam's position and authority on earth. So Jesus did not come to earth to reclaim his divine authority on earth. He always had it. Jesus came to earth to restore trust in him and to restore human authority to govern earth. Let that sink there for a minute. He did not come to establish or reclaim his divine authority. It was always his. It's never been relinquished, surrendered, taken, usurped. He came to reestablish trust so that we, and even unfallen angels will recognize his authority, trust him, but to, as a human, put humans back as the subordinate governor of earth. And so Jesus himself becomes the human planetary ruler. The second Adam, as the Bible uses the language, the second Adam. So consider this quote from the Desire of Ages, page 129. When Satan declared to Christ the kingdom and glory of the world are delivered unto me and to whomsoever I shall give it, he stated what is true only in part and declared it to serve his own purpose of deception. So Satan takes truths and he twists them to create a falsehood. That's what, in, that's what imposed law does. That's what human law does. That's what penal substitution does. It perverts and distorts everything. Continue on with the quote. Satan's dominion was that wrested from Adam, but Adam was the vicegerent of the creator. His was not an independent rule. The earth is God's, and he has committed all things to his son. Adam was to reign subject to Christ. When Adam betrayed his sovereignty into Satan's hands, Christ still remained the rightful king. Thus the Lord has said to King Nebuchadnezzar, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men, and gives it to whomever He will, Daniel 4:17. Satan can exercise his usurped authority only as God permits. That's why you see restraints put on him, the angels holding back the four winds of strife, the heads of protection thrown around God's faithful, and so forth, because he actually has no right to rule here. He usurped Adam's authority, and now Christ at the cross reclaimed human Adam man. Adam, man, man's authority, human species authority to rule this planet. Not just creator authority, human species authority now as Jesus, the victorious head of the species. So did Jesus need to do anything at the cross to recover his right to rule? The answer is no. And the teaching that Jesus had to recover his right to rule is a distortion that we get when we use the imposed law model way of thinking and try to understand these things. If we don't understand God's law correctly, then we misunderstand and misconstrue almost everything. Over and over and over. Almost every doctrine gets misconstrued. This false idea about God's law is symbolically taught as the metaphorical wine of Babylon that the whole world drinks and becomes intoxicated on. And a toxin causes you to not clearly understand and see. You don't think right anymore. And once you accept the idea that God's law works like human law, then it it changes your thinking, and you don't see things the same anymore. It's human beings that Jesus helps, according to Hebrews, and we'll get to that in a little bit. It's human beings that he heals, saves, and restores. But more, it's human beings that through his victory, he uplifts. Not simply to Adam's sinless state in Eden. We're not just restored to paradise lost. He elevates humans to share his throne in heaven. We actually have a higher station because of what Jesus has done. This is truly incredible. The lesson asks us to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. So let's look at those. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn to the world, he says, let all, let's, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes the, his angels wins his servants' flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be at the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will... um, They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And then if we look at the third paragraph with those verses in mind, it says these verses are arranged in three sections. Each section introduces a aspect of the enthronement ceremony of, of the Son. First, God installs Jesus as the royal son. Second, God introduces the Son as to the heavenly court who worship him, while the Father proclaims the eternal creatorship and rule of his Son. Third, God enthrones the Son, the actual conferral of power over the earth. What do you think about this interpretation of the verses we just read? What we read in the quarterly is an interpretation of the scripture that we read. Do you like the interpretation? I like the word pro- proclaims. Proclaims? Well, that wasn't actually the word that I jumped on. <laughs> but, but, I, but I'm okay with that. I'm not, 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 it's, just, it's just not the one that grabbed my mind. What, what's the question we always ask in here? What law lens? What law lens? What law lens? Okay, it seems to me again, the quarterly falls into the trap of the human law lens. For instance, think about words like this installs, enthrones, confers power.
1: Didn't Jesus already have the power? Didn't he already have the authority? Didn't he? So is it that what's the point? He already had it.
0: So that's, that's what we're asking. Words like installs, enthrones, confers power implies putting in position one who didn't previously hold the position. Isn't that what it implies? It also suggests arbitrary power, not actual power. This is different from saying the father makes plain that Jesus is the royal son Or the Father confirms the Son's authority and power over the earth. These are not the same words. These these have different meaning. This is the same false idea that's behind the penal substitutionary idea of righteousness. The falsehood that God declares people to be righteous who are unrighteous. Or proclaims it to to his point. (laughs) Right. Okay, I see what you're going now. Okay. And propaganda—they're synonymous. And when you have an imposed law construct, these are the things. Gotcha. Now we're on the now. now I see where you're going with that. Okay. Because because we have to see what what's being proclaimed. And and what's being proclaimed here is arbitrary authority. Do we recognize, for instance, the, the reality in the design law model about God's recognition, accounting? Or declaring righteousness is what happens after a person whose heart is enmity to God, like all sinners born in sin, become like Abraham who had faith in God, meaning his heart is no longer against God, but his heart now trusts God, so his heart has been set right or put right with God, so God recognizes that actual heart change and declares the reality of what's actually happened in Abraham. His heart's been set right. He's now justified. That's the reality. Yes? Yes?
1: Um, and also, just talking about Jesus and power, uh, John 13, 5, at the Last Supper, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up and, uh, from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water in basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, all of
0: So all power, all authority already given to him. But that also... We have to come back and process that now, but we're not going to do it right now, because that also suggests giving something he didn't have. In that context, it's, it's a little different. But let's continue on with this. Uh, in the human law, it's human law that makes arbitrary declarations. It's human law that can actually convict an innocent person and punish them for crimes of the guilty while letting the guilty go free like Jesus being sent to the cross and Barabbas being let go. Okay, That's human law. And when the gospel message teaches that God runs his universe that way, that he sent his son and God convicted and his son of our sin and punished his son in our place so that the innocent would be killed for the sins of the guilty and that he would then declare the, 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 the legal pardon for all those who claim the... This is complete corruption. It's human law model stuff. So, does Jesus, this goes to the question you were asking, Sophia, does Jesus get his power from the Father, or does Jesus have divine power independent of the Father? And this will go to the question of John 13. Is Jesus fully God, pre-existent, co-equal, or does Jesus obtain his existence, authority, power, and ability from the Father? Well, my view is Jesus is fully God, preexistent, with life original, unborrowed, underived, And he doesn't receive power from his Father. He wasn't granted. Uh, so Jesus doesn't have power from another. He's not granted authority from another. He doesn't have rights or privileges or abilities given to him or bestowed upon him. All power, all rights, all sovereignty, all abilities are already his by the reality of his divine being. That's who he is. It is Satan's lies that have made intelligent beings question Jesus' position, power, and authority, both in heaven and on earth. Therefore, making necessary, because lies were told, it becomes necessary to speak truth. And so it became necessary for the Father to declare or proclaim. This is where proclaiming can be used righteously. Righteously. The reality of what is the true position of the Son. The Son is equal with the Father. What does he ever proclaim it without evidence? <laughs> your question Your question is In the context of the controversy, he made the proclamation without the evidence having yet been revealed that would, uh, with certitude, um, refute Satan's lies. That's why a third of the angels were deceived. So what he declared was true, and there was already evidence of that truth available, but it wasn't evidence that completely refuted the lies of the devil. So that's why uh, other revelations uh, became necessary to reveal further truth that were confirmatory of those proclamations. Okay. (laughs)
1: Sorry,
0: I asked. <laughs> <laughs> but Satan, the father of lies, twists the heavens. So the father has a counsel. He declares the true position of the son, but Satan takes the declarations of truth because the full evidence hadn't yet been revealed. Uh, only partial evidences have been revealed, uh, but those evidence are all consistent with the truth. Uh, He takes those and makes new assertions, lies, and allegations that a a ruler has been placed over them. Liberties are taken away. We don't have freedom up here anymore. God is arbitrary, using arbitrary power to invest somebody, to put somebody in position of authority, To enthrone somebody over them, all the words our court is using, these are the the very arguments that Satan uh, used uh, and and would be true if, in fact, God enthroned or invested or gave power to. It makes Satan's argument true. It's so corrupt. So let's read out of Patriarchs and Prophets, starting in page, if we can get to the page I have here, page 37. Page 37, Patriarchs and Prophets. It says, Leaving his place in the immediate presence of the Father, Lucifer went out, went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels. He worked with mysterious secrecy and for a time concealed his real purpose under the appearance of reverence for God. I want you to hear this method. Hear what's happening here, folks. Satan is, is working in secrecy, claiming to... Appearing to be reverent for God. Satan's war advances in secrecy, not openness. It's one of the methods you should watch for. Watch for it today. Liars do not want open investigation, open inquiry, open discussion. They don't want free speech. They don't want it. Because truth will always expose them. So Satan works in secrecy. Jesus, of course, if you remember, in John 18, 20, said, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temples where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. That's right. Those who have truth, they want it out there. They want everyone to see. They don't have to work in secrecy. Not only does Satan work in secrecy, but according to this author, he works in secrecy claiming to be interested in the well-being of God and God's kingdom. He's, He's reverent for God. Well, how would that look today? Hmm. Let's say, for instance, if Satan were in charge of uh, some type of response, say to a a medical crisis. If Satan were in response to a medical crisis, he would claim that he's interested in protecting the health of people and stopping disease. That's what he would claim he's interested in. But his actions and policies would ensure the disease spreads, that resources are wasted that people divide in hostile camps rather than unite together that fear and distrust increase that the interventions to supposedly stop this disease actually cause more injury and harm than the disease itself and the people who bring God's principles of health to bear are blamed for causing the disease Now, if you look at those methods, which is what he did in heaven, and applying it to, I don't know, a health situation like that, I'm sure you would would look at that and think, that could never happen in this world. People wouldn't be so naive to buy into something that was so damaging and destructive. Just because somebody declares they're actually trying to help a situation, they could easily see how all these actions are making it worse and, and causing more harm. They could see it, couldn't they? This is why the mature are those who develop a practice ability to discern. So, lack, so much lack of discernment. I will tell you, our medical health care industry in America is broken. If you've ever valued the principles of healthful living, it's now. Our medical healthcare industry is corporate authoritarianism. Independent medical decision-making is anathema in our country now. Your doctors are under tremendous pressure to not think to surrender their mind to authoritarianism to licensing boards that are threatening to take licenses away to um, specialty societies to hospital corporations to insurance panels to Medicare panels. Tremendous pressures are being applied and and well more than half the doctors that I know um, don't know how to think for themselves anymore. Their practice is diagnose and follow a protocol at somebody else. The expert protocol. Well, the protocol says, the protocol says, the protocol says, yeah. Understand that the system is really, really broken right now. I get, I get emails from doctors from all over the country who, who are still thinking independently, and the incredible pressures they're under uh, from all these layers of the system. It's not godly. The methods being used are not godly. Continue on with the quote. He began to insinuate doubts concerning the laws that govern heavenly beings, intimating that though laws might be necessary for the inhabitants of the worlds, angels, being more exalted, needed no such restraints, for, for their own wisdom was a sufficient guide. What's revealed in this argument of Satan here? Satan is, is this idea that's being argued reveals his deepest-rooted deception that still 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 working hugely in the world today. What kind of law would be necessary for some or applicable for some or applied to some but not applied to others? What kind of law can function that way? Arbitrary, Arbitrary law, imposed law, human law. Uh, th- this is what he's arguing. The worlds might need these laws, but we angels don't. And this is what he's saying. God's laws are imposed. We don't need them. The angels And he's right that, that angels didn't need imposed laws. They didn't need that. The lie was, God's law works this way. But did angels in heaven need property rights laws or copyright laws or immigration and citizenship laws or mineral and drilling right laws or, or speed limits? Maybe they needed the speed limits. They, they, they moved like lightning. Maybe they had to, had to only, only speed of sound, speed of sound. speed of light too fast, too fast. Slow down. But the angels in heaven, did they still need to operate upon the laws that God built life to function upon? Yes. So this idea that there could be some group that needed laws, some group didn't, is the the assertion that God's laws are just made up rules. That's what it is. And Christianity still embraces this lie. It's the wine of Babylon I mentioned earlier. And God is waiting for a people who will present the truth and call the world out of this Babylonian imperial confusing system to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the final message of mercy. Continue on with the quote. They were not beings, the angels, they were not beings that could bring dishonor to God. All their thoughts were holy. It was no more possible for them than for God himself to err. The exaltation of the Son of God as equal with the Father was Represented as an injustice to Lucifer, who it was claimed was also entitled to reverence and honor. What do you hear going on here? What's described? Jealousy. Well, there is selfishness going on, no question. Jealousy. Jealousy, okay. But there's an assertion of equality. Yeah, There's an assertion of equality. Who is being asserted to be equal to whom in this? In this? Lucifer asserts his equality with, Christ. with Christ. That's right, with Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. The Bible uh, describes as Michael. Okay, now, how was he able to do that? He didn't assert equality with the Father. He asserted equality with Michael or Luce, or, or Jesus or Lucifer, the, the the divine Son of God. Does that throw you off? We call Jesus Lucifer. Yeah. Well, the Bible does that. In Timothy, Jesus is referred to as the bright morning star. The Greek for bright morning star is phosphorus in that text. When the when the Bible is translated out of Greek into Latin, the Latin Vulgate version of the New Testament, transfer phosphorus, the bright burning metal, the bright star, the bright sun, into Lucifer. Lucifer is the Latin word for light bearer, and Jesus is the light that lightens all men. And Lucifer, prior to his fall, Lucifer simply means light bearer. You hear echoes of that word still in English. Illuminate. Luminescence. Okay. Lucifer means light bearer. I understand that in a long time ago, matches were called Lucifers. Yep. Lucifer match. A Lucifer match. Because it it brings light. And so Lucifer in heaven was the created light bearer, the covering cherub, the guardian cherub, But the Bible says God lives in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16. Unapproachable by whom? This is not talking photons. Correct. This is not talking photons. This light is a metaphor for infinite truth, infinite love. God is an infinite being. Can any finite being, angel or human, enter into infinity? No, it's unapproachable to us. No matter how far down the pathway of truth assimilation we go. Let's say in the, in the hereafter, you and I live a hundred trillion quadrillion years and we grow every day in knowledge and truth so that we have that much more truth that we've assimilated into our understanding of reality than we have today. Guess how much more is still in front of us? Infinite. It never, it's infinite. We can't enter infinity. We can only grow on a journey that never ends. It's really beautiful if you think about it, because I love learning new things. So it's a really wonderful thing. Uh, But but finite beings can't enter infinity. And so if God, who is love, wants the closest intimacy with his creatures, and his creatures can't enter into infinity, what will necessarily have to happen? A member of the Godhead leaves infinity and enters into linear existence the unfolding of time, which God lives outside of. And that member of the Godhead has always been Jesus. He's been the go-between, the intercessor, the mediator, the bridge builder, the metaphorical ladder. Jesus has always been the connecting link between the infinite Godhead and the created intelligences. And prior to his incarnation as a human being, Jesus manifested in the form of an angel. And we have this all through scripture. You can look at one of the best places in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses talks to God at the bush. And the voice coming out of the bush, I am the God of your, of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, I'm the God. But who's, it says, the angel of the Lord spoke to him from the bush. Yeah, That's who it was, it was Jesus, always, always that way. And so, when you understand all that, then you understand, I think, the, the lid of the ark is kind of showing a little bit about this as well, Lucifer and Jesus. The two Lucifers, the two light bearers, the two closest, one who came out of infinity and stood amongst them, and one who was elevated to have the closest proximate, uh, proximity that a created being could get. But they were not equals. And if that's still troubling you, I just can't see how that could be true. That they couldn't really see that there was a difference that they could be caught up into this idea that an infinite God manifesting his angel they couldn't see that Lucifer and him were no they they, they could have seen that okay do we believe that our infinite God became human and did everyone recognize him as the infinite God as he walked around here on earth or was he so good at being human that in fact most people said he's just human still yeah yeah so I don't find that preposterous. So, Jesus entered into the councils then that Lucifer was not permitted into. Why was Lucifer not permitted? Because it's not arbitrary. It's actual. It's reality. An infinite being can enter infinity. A finite being, if God were to allow it, what would happen to a finite being that God permitted to step into infinity? They'd be destroyed. They'd be destroyed. It would consume them. It would be overwhelming for their processors. They couldn't do it. And so in love, God would not allow it. But Satan then used that because of jealousy that uh, manifested in him. So continue on. If the prince of angels could but attain his true and exalted position, great good would accrue to the entire host of heaven, uh, for it was his object to secure freedom for all. See again the lie? I want freedom! He wasn't wanting freedom. But now even the liberty which had heretofore enjoyed was put at an end, for an absolute ruler had been appointed them, and and to his authority all must pay homage. Such were the subtle deceptions that through the wiles of Lucifer were fast obtaining in the heavenly courts. Satan takes fact. Jesus goes into the heavenly councils. Lucifer is not permitted to twists that into a falsehood. God isn't fair. God makes up rules and keeps some out, allows some in, creates a lie, and then from that creates another new lie, and then we have a ruler put over us, somebody you have to answer to. We're not free anymore. Uh, There's no liberty around this place. This is what Satan does. Continue on the quote. Now notice this. There had been no change in the position or authority of Christ, And we're still answering the question that the, uh, the, uh, the courtly asserted that God enthroned Jesus, God invested in Jesus, God conferred power to Jesus. We are disputing that. Jesus always had power and authority because he's an infinite God. He is a member of the Godhead. So there had been no change in the position or authority of Christ Lucifer's envy and misrepresentations and his claims to equality with Christ made necessary a statement of the true position of the Son of God. But this had always been the same from the beginning. Many of the angels were, however, blinded by Satan's deception, as well are many humans. So God's statements, declarations, truths don't establish the truth. They don't establish it. It's not true because God said it. Then it was true before God said it. But the lies of Satan made the declaration necessary to be said. Yes.
1: And we wonder when you look through the Old Testament why God took such action against Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in, in Numbers 16, because their accusation was. And, and so you can almost hear Satan in heaven. <laughs> um, they came to the group as a group to oppose um, Moses. There were 250 Israelite leaders. And um, they said, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? And so you see that even this is like exactly what happened in heaven. We are all holy. We're all, And and yet Michael was setting himself above you. He goes into these privileged sessions and so on with God. You know, and so convincing, how, how can you convince a third of the angels to disregard Michael and God by insinuating, and that's why this is the only time in the whole Bible where the, the whole earth opens up and swallows them and everything attached to them, and then closes up over them. You think, why does God take such a sudden action in this case? Um uh, because it was it was rapidly infesting the whole camp. Two hundred and fifty leaders in the camp, with all the people behind them, and you see what happens in heaven, and this was happening in the Israelites as well. But I think this is exactly the same tack that Satan used in heaven.
0: Sure was, sure was. So our focus, we're trying to understand in Hebrews why um, the the sun is being described in such contrast with the angels, okay? And so the aspect of Jesus' achievement described in Hebrews, his achievement, his development, his position, is not about Jesus, the divine son of God, being installed, granted power, or enthroned. It is about Jesus, the human being, using a human brain, using human willpower, using human strength, to overcome the infection of sin and selfishness that Adam brought upon the species and reestablishing humanity as a subordinate governor of earth. That's what he was doing. Fixing, healing, cleansing, freeing humanity. He was not establishing any divine rights at all. So God's son... So this was confirmed by God as God's Son, which he has always been, creator, which he has always been, co-equal with God, which he has always been, but also now God confirms, reveals, declares, acknowledges in Hebrews chapter one that Jesus is still the Son of God as a human, and by becoming human, Jesus has not been diminished in his authority or position as God's Son, but has elevated humanity not only back to our loyalty in God's kingdom but becoming the new representative head and not only governing earth now but a human being governs the universe in Jesus Christ who is fully human it's really quite astounding this is quite a different position than God granting, God giving, God authorizing, God enthroning they're not the same does everybody see that? okay Talking about the right hand of God, seating. What's the significance of the right hand of God? Right hand is a sign of power. It's the one who wields that takes the action. In some um, uh, ancient kingdoms, the the person who had the authority to act in the king's stead, going to other places and taking actual authority, was called the hand, the hand of the king. Okay, because that is, uh, that is so. It's a symbolic way of saying Jesus is the action arm of the Godhead, and, and of course he has been. Uh, I'm going to skip because I want to get. In, if, we, if we have time, we'll come back to it. In the notes, there's a whole discussion on the Trinity, and and uh, exposes some of the uh, fallacies that people have about any um, any idea that Jesus wasn't fully God, always been coequal, and everything. We, we explore that and and some of the attacks that have been made on the Trinity uh, by sincere people. Uh, Monday's lesson is titled, Jesus, Our Mediator. And the last paragraph reaffirms, quote, Jesus is the mediator of God's blessing to us. He He is the mediator in that he is the channel through whom God's blessings flow. Again, well said. This is the right focus of his mediation. No question about it. Thinking this way, Jesus is the agent, the channel, the avenue through which God's blessings flow. But do his blessings flow only to sinners? Or do God's blessings flow also to angels and the beings of unfallen worlds? Then is Jesus a mediator to them as well? And do they also need his mediatorial work, the unfallen beings? Or do only sinners need mediation? What about mediation? If, the, if he's the channel through which God's blessings flow, do the unfallen beings need its blessings? And is that mediation? Or do we only see, view mediation through imperial law and somehow pleading one's case to an offended deity in order for that deity to not use power to harm? Do we understand earlier what we talked about? God lives in unapproachable light. He's an infinite being. Is Jesus leaving infinity and ministering God's truths and blessings to all finite beings throughout the universe? So is that a form of his mediation? So let me be clear. Through Jesus, we not only have revelation of truth about God, we not only have Satan exposed as a liar and fraud, destroying his power of deception, Hebrews 2.14, We not only have a revelation of what sin does at the cross. He was abandoned and let go by his Father. Sin separates, resulting in death. But we also have Jesus destroying the infection of fear and selfishness, being tempted in every way just like we are, with Father, if you're possible, cut past from me, with human emotions that lead us to act selfishly. He was tempted with those feelings. But he destroyed those by loving perfectly. Okay? The angels need the first three. They did not need the fourth, a new nature, a new character. Thus it says in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews' primary focus is about saving human beings. The angels in heaven needed the first three elements. That's why they long to look into these things. They need the truth about who God is, they need Satan's lies exposed. They need to understand why does sin result in death. They need these truths. They did not need to have sin removed from their hearts, minds and characters. We needed that too. So we needed the first three. We also needed something more. So these, here's a couple of historic quotes. First is five Bible commentary, page 11:32. <coughs> "That which can alone that which alone can effect, effective try this again. Yes. Get my dentures straight. That which... Uh, I don't have dentures in case anybody's wondering. Okay. <laughs> Somebody will invariate... Do you really have dentures? No, I don't. I just saved myself three emails this week. <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay? All right. All right. Um, that which alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen men could not have a home in the paradise of God without the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Shall we not then exalt the cross of Christ? The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy, Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed on earth. The paradise of bliss. And all who wish security in earth or heaven must look to the Lamb of God. The plan of salvation makes manifest the justice and love of God, provides an eternal safeguard against the defection in unfallen worlds, as well as among those who shall be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And then this is Review and Herald, January 11, 1881. Well, while we rejoice that there are worlds which have never fallen, these worlds render praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ for the plan of redemption to save the fallen sons of Adam, as well as to confirm. Firm that themselves in their position and character of purity, the arm that raised humanity—excuse me—the arm that raised hu- the human family from the ruin which Satan had brought upon the race through his temptations—is the arm which has preserved the inhabitants of other worlds from sin. Every world throughout immensity engages the care and support of the Father and the Son, and this care is constantly exercised for fallen humanity. Christ is mediating in behalf of man and the order of unseen worlds also is preserved by his mediatorial work. View and Herald, January 11, 1881. So many people from the penal view see mediation through the false law lens of an offended and angry God needing some sacrifice or payment presented to them, and the mediator is the one who makes the effectual plea to assuage the wrath, propitiate the wrath, turn aside the punishment, take the punishment in some way. This is all pagan. It's all fraudulent. It's all part of the Babylonian fallen system that the final message of mercy to the world is to free our minds from, that we see, in fact, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united, as the Scripture teaches. Read Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his son, but gave him up, how will he not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns Christ Jesus? He's at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. In addition to, in addition to, in addition to the Father, and the Son, they're together, interceding. And the Holy Spirit, in the same chapter, intercedes with groans and utterances that we can't even imagine. The whole Godhead is interceding Well, what are they interceding with? If they're not interceding with each other, then? With us. Three places. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God speaks in Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the sermon. See, Once Adam sinned, there would have been harmony, confederacy, unity of rebellious angels, sinful angels, and sinful human beings if God did not intercede in our hearts to convict, to give a longing for something better. We are not satisfied in this world of sin. We want something better. That's the Holy Spirit working on the heart, breaking up a confederacy and a unity that we would have. He also intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness, holding back the evil forces, the four winds of strife. And we see the, the stories in the Old Testament of God sending his angels to protect and watch over. Daniel in the lion's den, Elisha and the angel armies, and so forth and so on, Job, etc. But most importantly, he sent Jesus. See, the natural trajectory of sin. Once Adam sinned, the whole human species, because we're all descended from Adam, the whole human species is on a has a terminal condition and is on the path of eternal annihilation. Jesus came and partook of that humanity and opened a new... He interceded with the course of the condition of sin and opened a new avenue for all who trust him that we can now be elevated for eternal life. This is the intercessions of God. God was in the Son... Reconciling the world unto himself. That's the reality. So all this other stuff is part of, a, uh, is part of Satan's fraud and lie. And so we have uh, scriptures that confirm this as well. John, uh, Jesus speaking in John 12, 31 and 32. Now it's time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw oh. all unto me. Most of the translations insert a word that's not in the Greek. They insert the word men or people. It's not there. I will draw all into myself. The whole universe is being drawn at the cross, and that's confirmed in Colossians 1, uh, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, uh, Tuesday's lesson, it asks us to read Hebrews, and we're going to keep in mind what we just read in John 12, about uh, drawing all into himself, and we're going to read uh, Hebrews 2:14 through 16. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so by his death he might destroy whom has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Do we have a contradiction in scripture here? All beings in heaven and earth are being drawn at the cross, but now it just says he, 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 what he, he is not helping angels, he's helping humans. Is there a contradiction here? Do angels have a fear of death? Satan and, and his cohorts? I don't think there's a contradiction at all when it says this. We've already established that the angels in heaven needed the mediatorial work of Christ to reveal the truth about who God is, to refute the lies of Satan and expose him, and to demonstrate uh, why death comes, what sin actually does to people, and it severs the connection from the source of life. But angels in heaven did not need a new nature. And what Hebrews is talking about now, it specifically says, uh, the text that he shared in their humanity being tempted in all points, like we are, yet without sin, and thus he is helping us overcome the carnal nature. The angels did not need help with that, so he's not helping them with that. Understanding that. Yes, by watching
1: what happened to us and what God did for us, the angels can think if I chose something different. God loves me
0: that much. See what he did for those people. Correct. So they're being helped with truth, but in this text, the context of this text is not simply revelatory. It is also um, overcoming the nature that we couldn't overcome on ourselves. So that aspect of it, he's not helping angels with, he's helping us with. He's helping them with the revelatory aspects, but not the achievement aspects. That's my understanding of the difference. Okay, Wednesday's lesson. Uh, If you look in Wednesday's lesson, it says... uh, the, more important, uh, the most important thing the lesson states is in the last paragraph that we are called, in Wednesday's lesson, by God to be a priesthood of believers. That's what the lesson, quoting Peter, we are a priesthood of believers. This is the most important thing it says in the lesson. Do you understand that idea is the heart of the Protestant Reformation? That is the heart of the Protestant Reformation coming from returning to Scripture. You return to Scripture, you understand that the believers are the priesthood. Meaning, that we don't have any other person between us and God. We go to God directly. This is that you can think directly. You don't need a priest, a theologian, someone with a doctor, someone uh, in church office to tell you what the Bible means. That you are to study it for yourself. Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Romans chapter 14, verse 5. This is scripture. Okay? But it's not only that we can go to God directly. It's an actual requirement for salvation that you do. If you don't go to God directly, you can't be saved. Why? Well, no other person can repent for you. No other person can confess for you. No other person can receive from God His grace for you. No other person can receive God's forgiveness for you. No other person can be enlightened with God's wisdom for you. No other person can receive the love God wants to pour into your heart for you. No other person can love God for you. No other person can trust God for you. No other person can be reconciled to God for you. No other person can share your heart with God. And no other person can have a relationship with God for you. Understand the human intercessory systems that are designed to have you go to some system or other human being with your sin problem and have the system deal with it necessarily obstructs the plan of salvation because it, it obstructs your personal intimacy with the creator in which he indwells you it gives a false security Any questions about that? I'm going to pause. That's, that's, that's quite a strong assertion.
1: It makes me wonder why, why do so many people get confused and have a herd mentality where they just go along with whatever somebody says they think is right.
0: Children, immaturity. Laziness. Part, partly lazy, but partly immaturity. You can have a, a, a child who has a heart to want to do good but they're very childish. They don't understand reality. And and if you look at elementary school school students, elementary what are they preoccupied with? Authority and rules. Authority and rules. Teacher said, umpire said, referee said, uh somebody said, uh, uh the, the book said, um and they'll argue with their parents if they if they view the par- if the teacher having more authority on the subject than the parent. If they view the parent as having more authority or more knowledge or more wisdom than the teacher, they'll believe the parent. But it's all about lines of authority at this point and rules. And that's why there's so many tattletales and snitches in school. And that's why they get so upset when somebody doesn't keep the rule, they can't process off that. They're very, very rule-oriented. There is no actually thinking of what's right and wrong beyond the rules, the rules discernment or the person in authority who makes the rules. And so... And there's security and rule-keeping. Understand, security and rule-keeping, you're on first base, you're touching the bag. You can't tag me out. The rules say so. It doesn't matter you got the ball. I'm on base, you can't tag me out. God, I claim the blood of Jesus to my record in heaven. All my sins, past, present, and future are paid for, God. You can't tag me out of heaven. This is why. It gives a false security. I did my penance. I paid my 10% tithe. I kept the Sabbath and made sure Jesus was off the cross protecting the edges of the Sabbath. So he was off before sunset. So I made sure I kept the edges safe. Therefore, God can't tag me out because I kept the rules. This is the problem. This is why people do it. So there comes a point when there's like a transformation when you realize what
1: the rules are there for and that God, they're there for our relationship with God. That it's just, it's not about rules, it's about just having right, doing right, being right inside of you.
0: So those are focused on rules. Hebrews says, and we'll get to it in one of our future lessons, but Hebrews chapter 5 talks about um, that you ought to be on meat, but you're still on milk. And those on milk... The infants, the, 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 you actually use the word infants, are not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. You hear a righteousness by faith message? All the rule keepers have no clue what righteousness by faith is. They're not acquainted with it. They, they use the language. They speak the words. They have no idea what it is. Thus, that, they teach a false righteousness by faith. This is what happened to our church in 1888. Jones and Wagner came with the true righteousness by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We become the righteousness of God, the Bible says. That was rejected because that makes no sense to a rule keeper. To a rule keeper, we could never keep the rules. We'll never be good enough. We're imperfect. We all deserve punishment. We're worms that deserve to be killed. God is so holy, he can't even look at us. We have to have somebody between God and him so he can look at that person instead. And he sees the perfection of that person and declares that that's our perfection too. It's complete perversity. But then they have this false security in that. And, they, and it declares us to be that—that That is not righteousness. They're not acquainted with righteousness. They have a righteousness declared through rule-keeping. Not our rule-keeping, but Jesus' rule-keeping. He kept the rules perfectly for us, so we don't have to. And then they go on to teach a further corruption. And there's different versions of this. It's all the same corruption. The law can't be kept. In the opening of the Great controversy, Satan declared that the law of God cannot be obeyed, and if man should sin, that every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan, desire of ages 762. The law can't be kept. Must be punished. You can't keep it. Therefore, Jesus came. He kept it perfectly. God punished him, because sin has to be punished, and all the sins are put on him. But you can't keep it. Still, you, you get, you get declared to be righteous, even though you're not. There's lots of versions. One version, you go to the church. You go to your confessional, you go to your priest, you confess it, and the priest will declare your absolution from your sin. You have legal absolution now. That sin's not mine anymore. It was taken through the Eucharist into heaven, and Jesus goes to the Father. Right now, as I confess my sin, and he presents the blood to the Father and says, oh, oh, this sin was paid for by me, and the Father accepts the payment. Or, in the Protestant view, we accept the payment of Jesus. We go to Jesus. He presents his merits to the Father and reminds the Father of the sacrifice he's made and all the sins were paid and therefore we have in different Protestant views once saved, always saved. You can't live a life without perpetual sin but don't worry about it because all your future sins are already been paid for too. You're declared righteous even though you're not. This is These people are children. They're immature They're not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. The teaching about righteousness is we actually get a new heart and right spirit. The law is written on the heart and mind. We die to the old way. We get the mind of Christ. We live victoriously. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. This is a transformational message that our motives change. And it's no longer actually about the deeds. It's about the motives toward carrying out the deeds. And that's why Rahab lied in faith, her motive was to save and to love, not to protect self. She wanted to help others. She was immature, but her motive now shifted. And that's why she's in all faith. This is what we see. Oh, we had some more to go into, but we're, we're out of time. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your love, for the truths, For the, for the reality of your kingdom, we ask so much for the spirit to come and take the victory of Christ and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer our old selves living, but we have the new motives, the new, the new heart and mind of Christ that you want to produce in us, that we become truly partakers of the divine nature. At this Christmas season, we want to just again reflect and thank, thank you so much for coming to earth partaking of the broken humanity that we have all inherited from Adam, but through you we, we ask for your intercessions in our hearts and minds to restore in us the, the new motives and the new heart of, of your Son. We pray in your holy name. Amen.